Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and today I'm privileged to have as my special guest, Michael J. Gorman. I've been a fan and gobbling up uh, many of his books over the last several months. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about his background. Uh, Michael holds the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland. He's a highly regarded New Testament scholar. He's the author of a number of books, including Cruciformity, Paul's Narrative Spirituality of the Cross, Inhabiting the Cruciform God, Kenosis, Justification, and Theosis in Paul's Narrative Soteriology, and Apostle of the Crucified Lord, a Theological Introduction to Paul and His Letters, and those are just some of the titles that he has written. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about uh, the concept that he's perhaps, uh, one of the concepts he's most known for, and that is Cruciform Spirituality, and uh, we hope to unpack the the theology of that and uh, also maybe connect a few dots to how that might apply to other areas of the Christian life, including multi-faith engagement. Uh, Dr. Gorman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's a privilege to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I'm, uh, I'm pleased and many times surprised who I'm able to get to come on the podcast. And I consider you right up there with uh, some of my uh, scholarly heroes of the faith, like uh, N.T. Wright and so on. So uh, I'm pleased and, and thankful that you're here. Um, let me begin by just kind of sketching really quickly how I connected with your work and why I think it, it's so important. Um, for sure, many years, yeah. I have been uh, keeping abreast of the scholarship on the crucifixion of Christ, uh, looking at some of the uh, archaeological evidence. Um, in the last few years, there has been more academic discussion. There's been some new finds in the last few years um, telling us more about crucifixion. And the reason why that's so fascinating to me is because I'm constantly rethinking and trying to better understand the significance and power of crucifixion in the Christian narrative. And it's just fascinating to me, this this criminal's death, uh, that Rome put people to death who were foreigners and slaves to maximize not only pain and suffering, but shame and degradation to send a message. And yet somehow that becomes the central message of the cross to the point where Paul's able to say that he's not ashamed. So there's that component of my interest. But then also over the years, I've been reflecting on what are the challenges of American Christianity, particularly American evangelicalism that I move within. And I just sense that something has been off for a while. And when I encountered your work in cruciform spirituality, a light bulb kind of went off. And I said, that's it. I really think we're we're missing connecting that. So um, that's how I encountered your work. Can you begin by how did you... Uh, was it, was it a, did you have a light bulb moment where you said cruciformity, that's something I want to explore? Or was it a slower process for you? Yeah, it was more of a slower process, I think. Um, when I first came to faith myself, I really gravitated to the notion of being in Christ. And that has kind of driven me through the years for, for many, many years. 
but I, it was only when I was in graduate school in seminary and then graduate school that I began to wrestle with some of the theological and uh, if you will, spiritual implications of being in Christ and connecting that specifically to the notion of Christ crucified and resurrected and what that had to do with um, being in Christ. So I, I guess I probably separated those two things for a long time. They began to come together when I looked in a serious way in graduate school at the imitation language in Paul's letters, imitation of Christ, what did that mean? And for a couple of years, I was using imitation language and actually wrote a PhD dissertation on Christ that was starting in the area of imitation and moved more and more toward narrative and participation. So it was in my PhD work that I began to think sort of academically about these things and life just kind of followed. I mean, I, I don't read scripture just for an academic treatise. You know, sure. I, read it, I read it as part of the church. I read it as, as divine address to me. So um, it, it wasn't long till I began to, to sort of make those connections. But I think the big change for me was seeing the story of, of Jesus in Paul as a story, as a, having a particular narrative pattern to it. And once I figured that out, the rest just kind of, as I said, with life, academically also began to sort of flow and to follow. But a lot of that didn't follow until I had finished my PhD and, and some years later started working on the book that you've mentioned, Cruciformity. Now, uh, for those listeners and viewers who may not be familiar with the term and the concept, can you define that and help help connect the dot to, to where that we find that discussion and, and explication in Paul's writings? Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a mouthful, isn't it? The term itself, <laughs> cruciformity, uh, five syllables or whatever. It, it's pretty interesting that. Um, most people probably have some conception of it, but just don't have the language for it. Mm -hmm. The language itself, the word cruciform is actually an architectural term. It was used to, it has been used to describe the way churches, especially cathedrals were built in the shape of a cross. So the, the simple meaning of cruciform is from the Latin cross shaped or cross formed. And if you go into the National Cathedral in Washington or Notre Dame in Paris or wherever, you walk into a space that's shaped like a cross, like that, right? Um, in the 20th century, people started using that adjective cruciform to describe the, the spirituality and the theology we see, especially in Mark's gospel and then in Paul you know, language of taking up your cross and and uh, being a servant and looking to be like Jesus to serve rather than be served. People started using that architectural term in a, in a theological and a spiritual way. When I started using it as an adjective, I thought um, it would be nice to have a noun to go with this. What are we talking about? So I thought that I invented the term or the word cruciformity. It turns out one scholar and some churches had already been using that language, but it wasn't very well known. Now it's it's a household, at least in academic theology circles, it's a household term. It means cross-shaped living or cross-shaped existence or becoming like 
the crucified Christ. So conformity to Christ crucified would be a basic definition that needs to be unpacked. Um, Jesus said things like, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, Paul says uh, things like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he specifically, I think, means Christ in his self-giving. So I, I would say the essence of cruciformity is self-giving love, because I think that's the essence of Christ's life and the essence of the cross, the entrance of God's work on the cross. Um, but, it, but it means certainly much more than that. In my own work, I've made a close connection. This goes all the way back to my graduate school days, a, a close connection between what Paul says about Christ, that he gave himself rather than uh, looking out for his own benefit, he gave himself up in love, specifically on the cross. So that moves from Christ to Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we see uh, that going on in Paul's letters. And then basically Paul says, well, if you're imitating me, imitating Christ, then really you're imitating Christ. Mm. And, and more specifically, I would say that the translation of imitate me is more like become imitators of me by participating in Christ, Christ living within us and us living within Christ. So, you know, if we go back to the story of Jesus, the, the fundamental story for Paul is Philippians 2. Christ was in the form of God. He didn't count that equality with God as something to exploit, but emptied himself, taking on human form, becoming a slave and obedient, uh, obediently going to death. Um, so what does it mean to live that, if we think of that as a pattern, what does it mean for Paul, for the earliest Christians, and now for us to have that kind of story or pattern be our story, our pattern? Uh, I appreciate that. I think it's very helpful for folks who simply haven't encountered it overtly. Again, like you said, they probably have some kind of idea, but they don't know what language to put on it. Can you unpack that a little bit more in terms of what, what would that look like? What did it look like for the early Christians mm -hmm. uh, to practice this cruciform spirituality? And then what might it look like for us? Yeah. Let me go back to some texts. Um, if we go back to Philippians 2, there's the story that Paul tells there in just a very succinct way is someone with status, namely Christ, engages in an act of self-emptying and self-giving rather than an act of self-exploitation. Okay. Um, Paul then connects that to the Christian community in Philippians 2 saying, look out for others' interests rather than yourself. And that's the bottom line. So it's a kind of altruistic love that comes out of that love of Christ. Um, and that takes on many, many different forms in the early church give you a concrete example. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, Paul talks about this conflict in, Cor in the Corinthian churches among those who think, hey, I can go eat meat. I can do anything I want because I'm free in Christ. And I have the right, and that's the word that Paul uses, Greek word exousia. I have the right to eat meat in the temple precincts, even if it's offered to sacrifices, because I'm knowledgeable. I know there's no such thing as that God. Uh, you know, Apollos does. Apollo doesn't exist. Uh, Artemis doesn't exist. Zeus doesn't exist. So I can eat that meat, and and if other people don't understand that, that's their problem, right? So it's a very rights-oriented way of thinking of life. Paul says, "Hold on. Christ had the right to." 
everything that would be the, the rightful prerogatives and privileges of being God. But he gave up that right, the use of that right, I should say, in order to show his love for others. So Paul would say to the Corinthians and did say to the Corinthians, you have that right, but out of love for your neighbor who doesn't understand these gods don't exist or who might be tempted to go back into idolatry or immorality or whatever, don't exercise the right, yes, that you legitimately have. Um, and, and Paul says, and, and I'm an example of that. Uh, first of all, I have the right as, a, as an apostle to be paid and to take a, a spouse with me. And I don't use that right for any rights that apostles have. And he uses that example of himself to say, you Corinthians could do the same thing. Uh, to the Thessalonians, he says, I could have thrown my weight around as an apostle and ordered you to do certain things. But instead, in love, I treated you like a mother nursing her child or a father taking care of his children, forming them. So, so, so Paul has a couple of different ways that he focuses on himself, ultimately to focus on Christ and to pass on that model to others. In Romans, he says, yeah, you have the right to eat whatever you want, but looking out for the needs of the weaker members of your community, maybe you need to think like Christ and say, I'm going to look out for the weaker members and not do what I, what I think I can do. You know? So it's a, it's a whole different definition of freedom. Moving into the contemporary context, there are so many incarnations, if you will, of this in everyday life, from the simplest in the household. You know, I have the right, some people would say, to tell my children what to do or to tell my spouse what to do um, or to try to get my way in, in a household argument or a household decision-making process. And the cross says simply, Look out for the other. Look out for the person you think is not as worthy as you are, as important as you are. In the church, uh, the, the whole mindset of, you know, things like, um, well, I want my style of music, or I want my style of worship, or I want my priorities in, in mission or in activities or whatever. That, that whole way of thinking is so contrary to the, to the cross. Um, how, how to rethink. So how to rethink, reimagine life in the pattern of, although I have certain rights, interests, in the interest of others, I am willing to give them up. And when we all do that, see, cruciformity is a communal ethic. Mm -hmm. We all do that. It's a communal spirituality. We look out for one another. We bear one another's burdens. Um, and, and maybe one last thing, if I could, just to say, in the context of American Christianity, this has a lot to say with the exercise of power. Because ultimately, rights are about power. Power over, power to influence, and the cross calls us not to look for the world's kind of power, but the cross as the power of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So, I mean, I could go on and on about, about that and would be happy to, but there, there's a lot of challenges there for the church. 
I appreciate those uh, examples and connecting that to our contemporary situation. Uh, a few other things come to mind for me. And uh, if you want to comment on that, uh, respond. If not, that's okay too. But it, it would seem to me this, you, you've hit on something very important for contemporary, especially conservative Christians in America, the recognition of, the, of rights and the connection with power. And it, I have been extremely surprised during the pandemic that it became political very quickly, the idea of wearing masks. And this yeah. somehow in some segments, even in the church many times, uh, in fact, there's been some high profile cases. I'm seeing where whole churches refuse to wear masks um, because it infringes on their rights. Um, and I think many times this idea of Christian America, uh, and therefore, if you're going to be a true American, uh, you really need to consider being Christian and those who aren't in minority religious traditions, they're viewed problematically. So there's this, this power dynamic that we often don't recognize. It doesn't come into interaction and dialogue with this very important concept of cruciformity. Would you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, John, I just have <laughs> never thought about these issues. <laughs> well, let me start with an irony. The irony here is that whether you're of the left or of the right, politically, socially, theologically, most people in the United States are addicted to rights. They, there's an idolatry of rights. Mm. Rights on the left have to do with, let, let's just name a couple of things. Rights on the left have to do with my body, my rights, abortion, for instance. Personal Don't tell me what to do. Keep your hands off my body. I've got the right to do whatever I want with it. And that's something that the, the conservative uh, Americans, Christians and others, criticize all the time. Those same people who are criticizing that idolatry of rights are saying, but I have the right to have as many guns as I need and want because that's the second amendment. And by God, you're not gonna do anything but pry those guns out of my dead hands, you know? Right. Um, so you have that right think rights thinking. And um, uh, the more recent, somewhat tamer, but nonetheless important illustration you gave the right not to wear a mask. This is America and I'm not gonna uh, be forced by anyone to give up the right to, to act in freedom. So it's a misconstruction of freedom and of rights that is very Paul, uh, very much Corinthian, if you will. <laughs> it's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians, you need to, okay, let's acknowledge the existence of those rights for a moment, although maybe we wanna question them. Uh, let's acknowledge those, the existence and then say, what does the cross say about what to do with your body? What does the cross say what to do with your so-called God-given right to, to bear arms? Uh, this needs to be questioned. Now, the irony, of course, is that both sides are criticizing the other. They're both addicted to the idolatry of, of rights. I, I don't want to play down that some rights are important, civil rights of certain kinds need to be emphasized, but there, be, there becomes an, an addiction to this, certain kinds of rights in particular, that becomes fundamentally problematic for Christians and neither side can, can see that. Um, Francis Collins, who's the head of the NIH, is also a devout evangelical Christian, mm. not, a, not of the right wing variety. He's actually good friends with Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
Francis Collins says, and, and said re again recently, that the pandemic is a, a good time to, to practice love of neighbor. I mean, that's what the cross is all about. It's God loving neighbors, even loving enemies. And if we can't wear a mask to show love for the immunocompromised, even now, post vaccine, for the immunocompromised, for others who are weak, for those who might be otherwise not protected. I mean, this is simply um, the cross in action. I appreciate your response on that. Uh, I'm of a like mind. Uh, the reason I said, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Sometimes folks don't like to weigh into current political controversies, but I, I think this is, this is important. And I think that cruciformity has a direct application in some of these, these challenges. So I appreciate your willingness to go there. I'm not, I'm not yeah. one of those. I'm not one of those scholars who simply sits in an ivory tower. I mean, <laughs> I, I, this is real life. That's right. That's right. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider becoming a part by sharing on social media, clicking like, and visiting our patrons page and website donation page. You can find the links on the program notes and YouTube comments. Thank you for your partnership. Now back to the program. Um, you probably would also agree that uh, many times in Christianity, there's an emphasis on salvation and the afterlife. And there tends to be, we, we don't emphasize as much uh, what we should be doing in the here and now, other than preaching the gospel, refuting heretics, and, and making sure everybody has, you know, heard the message and, and uh, ready to go on to, to heaven or hell. And so there's this escapist element, I think, many times in our Christian uh, practice. And yet, as I read the Bible, there's this call for, for holiness and justice and the outworking of the kingdom of God in the present, even as we look towards the future. How does a focus or maybe a renewed focus on cruciform spirituality help us correct this imbalance? Yeah, good question. Um, I think that many Christians see the cross primarily, if not only, as the, as the source of their salvation. And what I'm arguing for is that we should see the cross as both the source and the shape of our salvation, or both the source and the shape of our life in Christ. So uh, if you simply see the cross as the means of forgiveness, which it is, I don't want to downplay that, but if you simply see it as the means of forgiveness, you're only looking at half of the story. And if the means of forgiveness means primarily the means to get to heaven by the death of Jesus, um, you're missing out on 99% of the Bible. Uh, the primary message of the Bible is God calling God's people to be God's people in the world, whether that's the people of Israel or the people of the church. Um, and the eventual end of that is life with God. So we're moving toward that life with eternal life with God post-mortem. But in the meantime, we're about the business of, of living as God's holy people now, as you said. And I, I think a lot of Christians, especially more conservative Christians, are um, afraid of words like justice and social justice. Uh, they associate them with far left extremist um, versions of those realities. But justice 
is in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Justice has to do with God's plan, God's mission of, uh, to use N.T. Wright's language, putting the world to rights, you know, very British saying, mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of, putting, of putting the world back together again, of, of fixing a broken world. And um, if that's the mission of God, we're, we are not only beneficiaries of that, but as God's people, we're participants in that. Um, we have to be very careful in defining our terms and, and living them out so that justice doesn't become code language for adapting or adopting um, certain kinds of principles that are unbiblical. But what I think many Christians fail to realize is that both Jesus and Paul continued the tradition of peace and justice language and practice that we see in Isaiah and Micah and all the prophets. And uh, to neglect that is really completely unbiblical. I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, a cruciform hermeneutic of scripture. Um, I, I, this podcast and my ministry is devoted to uh, helping Christians uh, relate in more Christ-like, neighborly, and hospitable ways towards religious others, um, particularly in America, where we're, there, we, we're, I think we're now in a post-Christendom culture. The church is suffering a lack, increasing lack of credibility, and we just need to rethink our stance towards religious others who are also seeking their place in the public square. Years ago, I was asked to write a lead article for uh, Fuller Seminary uh, Journal, and it was dealing with new religious movements and Christian responses to those new religious movements. And there were different respondents who wrote uh, in response to my essay. At the conclusion of my essay, one of the things I tried to summarize was I, uh, my approach, and I think this is a good approach for the church, is to take a Christological hermeneutic in looking at scripture as it relates to religious others. If I were to rewrite that today, I think it would say not only Christological, but cruciform. And all, all of the respondents, with the exception of one, thought my essay was a positive contribution to the subject matter. However, one scholar took issue and accused me of cherry picking the scripture. I don't mind somebody saying, you know, I, I don't think you're right in your interpretation, but cherry picking to me brings in a pejorative kind of element. Um, I, I think we're, what we see in the New Testament is a cruciform hermeneutic, a, a Christological lens. And therefore, we ought to be reading the scripture and developing practices in light of cruciformity as we relate, whether it's a multi-faith engagement context or, or any other. What would your thoughts be on that? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that um, I would want to emphasize is, and I, I should have said this earlier, perhaps, the, the beauty of a cruciform um, ethic or spirituality is that it is also infused with the resurrection. It is life-giving. Um, and that's because of the continuity between the crucified Jesus and the resurrected Jesus. We see this all through the New Testament. You know, when Jesus appears to Thomas, he's got his uh, wounds. When we see the revelation uh, worship in chapters four and five, the lamb uh, is slaughtered, but standing, you know, the, this, this continuity of the resurrected Jesus and the crucified Jesus. The great German uh, New Testament scholar of the 20th century said, 
the cross is the signature of the risen one. Mm. So the reason I say that with respect to hermeneutics to interpretation is we now live in the time when the resurrected Jesus is our guide to um, interpreting scripture. We see this in um, all the gospels, you know, well, not all the gospels, but all parts of the New Testament where scripture is now reread in light of Christ's death and resurrection, ministry, death and resurrection. And to, to, to take it in a, in a cruciform direction is to say, the risen Christ remains the crucified Christ. So whatever understandings of scripture we have, have to be in light of those two events, the cross and resurrection. And if we simply emphasize um, the resurrection, we're going to lose out on the cruciform reality of Christ who is risen. And we're going to emphasize power and triumphalism and so forth. So in a way, this I'm a Methodist, I'm a Protestant. I teach in a Catholic seminary. In a way, this comes down to the, the, the distinction between having a crucifix or a cross mm -hmm. as your symbol. Mm -hmm. um, they both have significance. But if you, if you forget the crucifix, if you forget the reality of Christ crucified as still our present Lord, we can look at scripture and find all kinds of ways of saying that talks about the power we should now have in light mm -hmm. of the resurrection, in mm -hmm. light of the spirit. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of cruciformity. The resurrected Christ is the one who enables us to live the cruciform life and to read scripture through the lens of cross and resurrection. So I think cruci a cruciform hermeneutic helps us to stay away from exploitations of scripture that would lead us into the sense of, of having power, wanting power, grabbing power, and needing power in the, in the um, secular sense of the word, rather than, than in the cross-shaped power that, that Paul preaches. That is so helpful. Um, you know, Protestants, of course, we emphasize the, the empty cross, and we sometimes criticize Catholics for the crucifix. Um, I must say that uh, in interacting with other Christian traditions, I find elements of Catholicism very helpful as a corrective as a Protestant, including uh, the crucifix. Um, just as an aside, a little story here, I stumbled upon in my research on uh, crucifixion and so on, I found a little controversy that had arisen within Catholic circles over a particular crucifix that the current Pope has, which uh, was also used by a prior Pope, because uh, the controversy among some conservative Catholics was the Christ on that cross looks too weak, doesn't look powerful, looks emaciated, almost like an Auschwitz victim, one person said. And I was struck by that because it dawned on me that, that Catholics too wrestle with this, this issue of power. It's almost like we have to have the muscle Jesus. Uh, I found you can find images uh, via a Google search of this muscular, almost bodybuilding Jesus on the cross, breaking free from the bounds. And we, we seem to wrestle, don't we, within Christianity with this, even equating what the New Testament and Paul seems to talk about the symbol of strength through weakness and humility. We have to attach our notions of power to it. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, I don't want to get rid of the word power. I think that the spirit of God is 
a powerful force, if you will, a powerful presence. The question isn't whether we have access to God's power. The question is, what is the nature of that power? Mm -hmm. And as you said, um, it's the power, uh, not power and weakness, but power in weakness. Mm -hmm. uh, the power of weakness and that, that kind of connection, that technical language of symbiosis of those of those things that we find in Christ crucified. I think many times it seems like an oxymoron to us, the idea of strength and weakness, but it's certainly something that's there that we need to reconnect with. In your book, Cruciformity, you've got three chapters devoted to cruciform love. Uh, and that's something I think we need to interact more with as well. We talk about the need to love God and love neighbor, but there are certain neighbors that we are hesitant to extend that cruciform love to. And then there's that uh, subversive concept of Jesus of love your enemy. How does cruciform spirituality, uh, how can we apply that more to our present context in terms of loving neighbor and loving enemy as well? Yeah. Well, most Christians realize that their salvation is rooted in God so loved the world that he gave, or as Paul says in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You read carefully in Romans 5, we also find out that we are described as God's enemies. So at the, at the heart of the cross is the enemy love of God. And once that grasps us, and we understand the implications of that, we can't run away from the notion that to be saved into this new life uh, is a life of learning to love enemies. And in that sense, Paul's teaching about the cross in his own life simply continue the teachings of Jesus uh, about loving enemies and non-retaliation. Most Christians, I think, if you were to list 10 virtues that Christians say we should have, love of enemies is going to be number 11. You know? <laughs> it's, not, it's not high on the list. So we need, uh, as, as uh, my good friend Stanley Harawa says, we need a, uh, a community to teach us how to love, teach us how to read the Sermon on the Mount, teach us how mm -hmm. to, what it means to be uh, cruciform. So we, we need to learn that together. And what it means, first of all, we need to be careful about defining or describing people as enemies. That's, that's dangerous territory mm -hmm. to begin with. Mm -hmm. Enemies in what sense? Uh, uh, Muslims are not enemies simply because they don't believe in Jesus. Um, if you're a Republican, Democrats are not, are not enemies just because they differ with you on domestic policy or even on uh, controversial issues. Um, so we need to be careful about how we use the word. But when we have legitimate enemies, uh, we need to recognize them as such and then pray for the grace to love them because that's the call of the cross. Uh, in, in, in your book, Inhabiting the Cruciform God, you have a chapter titled, Paul, the Resurrection and the End of Violence. I love that title. Can you talk about some of the key points that you make there? And again, the implications for American Christianity, particularly with a, a consciousness that we live in empire and that the United States is the world's lar largest uh, arms merchant, unfortunately. Um, so how do those concepts, again, from the New Testament, how do they speak to us today? Or yeah. How should they? 
Well, I think they definitely should speak to us today. Um, Paul's an interesting character. I think everybody knows that he had been a persecutor of the church. But I, I don't think everybody sort of sits back and says, well, what does that mean? He was committed to sacred violence. Mm. Now, we don't know exactly what ex to what extent that took place. Um, but he says himself, I was zealous to destroy the church of God, Galatians chapter one. And what a number of scholars have, have discovered over the last, especially the last 25 years or so, is that Paul seems to be indebted himself to a figure in the Old Testament who only gets mentioned a couple of times, Phineas. The uh, story in Numbers suggests that Phineas killed with a spear um, an Israelite who was with his consort, his Midianite consort, and that the result was God's anger with the people was um, placated, was mm -hmm. stayed. And in, in Psalm 106, it even says that Phineas was justified by this act and was granted, we learn in Numbers, he was granted a um, a perpetual priesthood. James Dunn, uh, the late James Dunn, Tom Wright and, my, and I have argued that Phineas is behind Paul hmm. and that Paul is uh, believing that he, like Phineas, needs to purify the people of God by, um, by means of sacred violence. And that's what he sets out to do until he meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he realizes in, that, in the aftermath of that meeting that God's way of bringing purity and life to the world has nothing to do with inflicting violence, but absorbing violence. Mm -hmm. Because the resurrection vindicates the violent death of Jesus at the hands of the Romans. And now the cross is the power and wisdom of God. The cross is vindicated as, the, as that by means of the resurrection. So as, as Jesus, the resurrected one, appears to Paul, Paul's completely blown away by this, as, as the story in Acts tells us, and, and as his letters confirm. He has a complete rearrangement of his mental, spiritual, and psychological furniture, his whole way of life. And as a result, he decides, discovers, is led, whatever we want to say, that the way of Jesus is the way of God. It's the way of justification. It's the way of right relationship with God. It's the way of purity. It's the way of holiness. Not the way of Phineas. Not the way of sacred violence. Not the way of exclusion. And, and American Christians have just not picked up on this for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what that chapter tries to argue, how important that is. The resurrection confirms the life and death of Jesus as the way of God and as, as our way. Now, when it comes to American Christians, what we often find, is, as you were hinting at, is that American Christians are sometimes the most vocal and, and strong supporters of American violence. We go back to that same dichotomy and irony I was talking about before. The left wants the violence of, you know, I can do with my body what I want, even if that's the violence of 
uh, abortion at any time in any stage for any reason. And the right says, uh, I can I can use guns, I wanna support war, I wanna support Israel, even when they're being unjust to the Palestinians. I mean, just so many ways that this irony I was talking about later reemerges in terms of rights, power, and violence. As Paul says in Romans 3, we are violent people from head to toe. And that's what, that's part of the problem that God wants to solve. Mm-hmm. American Christians haven't recognized that. Instead, they've embraced violence instead of eschewing it, instead of fleeing it. If Paul were in America, he wouldn't simply say flee idolatry and flee sexual immorality. He would mm-hmm. add in a heartbeat, flee violence. I like that. I love it. Let's get that printed up on bumper stickers or T-shirts or something, I think. (laughs) Uh, One final question for you, uh, Dr. Gorman. Um, You've already touched on this a little bit and identified some things, but if you were to uh, identify a few specific challenges for American Christianity that you would like to see a little critical self-reflection and application of cruciform spirituality to as we wrestle with this internally and then try to impact the world, what, what are some of those key areas? Oh, there's so many, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think I would start back up again with the power and the rights thing. That, that cruciform spirituality simply transforms those things. Uh, power becomes the power to love, the power to serve, uh, the strength to love, to use Martin Luther King's uh, language. Uh, rights become something that we hold very, very tentatively. We reconsider where they come from, if they exist, how we should use them. Uh, so all kinds of things need to be rethought and relived. But then also we have in, in our culture, as, as we would all admit, a kind of worship of um, success. And that has to do with power, obviously, whether it's financial or, or allegedly spiritual. I, I remember one pastor writing to me um, years ago, probably a, d- a decade ago now saying, I really liked your book, Cruciformity. Oh, by the way, I haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, I think you know it's coming out in a 20th anniversary edition yes. this summer uh, with a a forward by a younger scholar, Nijay Gupta, whom a lot of people I think will know, and an afterward uh, by me. But anyhow, um, this pastor wrote to me and said, I, I read your book, I really resonate with it, but my denomination's policy and, and, and ethos is, you start with a small church and you just work your way up the ladder till you get to the big church where you have more power and influence in your city, in your denomination, maybe even in your country. And he wrote to me and said, I know that's wrong. I know the way of the cross is right, but I don't know how to escape my denomination's culture. Um, Timothy Gombas, who's a a New Testament scholar, uh, just wrote a book on ministry and weakness on on addressing this very subject, great great little book. Uh, So that's that's certainly that, that idolatry of success. And, and I guess I would have to add, these things all come together in a very dangerous way in, in the nationalism that we have seen hmm. in recent years. Um, I was horrified, as many people were, on, 
on January the 6th to see people wearing Christian symbols, carrying American flags and doing violent things and threatening to do violent things at the same time. Unfortunately, even though that was an extreme, it is an extreme version of something that's more common. And we just need to, we need a, we need a, a revival to use a kind of old fashioned language, but we, we need a, a spiritual transformation. Well, Dr. Gorman, I appreciate all of that. We could talk for hours about uh, all the highlighting I've done in the various books of yours that I've read. And uh, I just uh, appreciate it so much. You taking the time out of a busy academic schedule to come here on the podcast and discuss all of this. Well, I appreciate the invitation and I, and I hope that it, what I've had to say will be stimulating and helpful to your listeners and viewers. I'm sure it will. Again, my guest is uh, Michael J. Gorman, and he is the author of a number of books, including Cruciformity, the, the main focus for our conversation today, Paul's Narrative Spirituality of the Cross. In the program notes, you will find uh, that book and others and links to them. Uh, we encourage you to purchase those. It will be a great blessing and benefit uh, to your spiritual growth. And uh, once again, we thank Dr. Gorman for being here as our guest. And we thank you so much for our listeners and viewers. Until the next uh, edition of the Multi-Faith Podcast, my name is John Moorhead. Thanks for listening and viewing.